Lifestyle choices and environmental factors impact your brain health and the physiology and psychology of your mental health. When you're ready to turn your brain on to get your game on, listen to In Your Head Radio. Now here's your host, Lee Richardson. So thanks for joining us today. We've got a really interesting show, and we're going to talk about something right away that I know everybody is interested in, and that's how sugar affects your brain. Dr. Nicoa Vina is an associate professor of neuroscience at Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City and a visiting professor of health psychology at Princeton University. She graduated from Princeton with her PhD in neuroscience and psychology and completed her postdoctoral fellowship in molecular biology at Rockefeller University in New York City. She's a research neuroscientist, an expert in the fields of nutrition, diet, and addiction, with a special focus on nutrition during early life and pregnancy and women's health. Her research achievements have been honored by awards from several groups, including the New York Academy of Sciences, the American Psychological Association, and the National Institute on Drug Abuse. In addition to over 100 peer-reviewed scholarly publications, which listeners, you have no idea how impressive that is, just finishing up a PhD trying to read 100 peer-reviewed scholarly publications can be, it can be a trick. I can't imagine being an author on that many. She's also written some books, What to Eat When You're Pregnant, What to Feed Your Baby and Toddler, and What to Eat When You Want to Get Pregnant. She appears as a science expert in the media. She's been on Dr. Oz's show, Good Day New York, and The Doctors, as well as many other programs. You know, and the sure, how sugar affects the brain is the number two most watched TED EX health talk. Thank you so much for being with me today, Dr. Avina. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Lee. So, you know, I have utilized, personally utilized your little YouTube video on how sugar affects the brain many times because you know a lot more about nutrition than I know, but I know that nutrition is fundamental to brain health and nutrition and sleep. Without those two things, it's really hard for the brain to work very well. And the biggest problem I have with parents is getting them to get their kids off of the sugar. And you know, sugar's in everything. It is, it is. And it's so hard for many reasons. You know, in many cases, it's hard because people don't realize all the places sugar is located, all the names for sugar. It's not all that easy to identify sugar. And so it's often the case that people are eating things that they think are healthy, like for instance, for breakfast, maybe you grab a yogurt and then maybe you have a, you know, English muffin. And it turns out that those two things both contain sugar. And so you might think that you're making good choices, but in reality, you're adding added sugar to your diet throughout the day and you don't even realize it. And another big issue that I think especially parents face is that sugar is a silent killer in the sense that you know, it's not going to necessarily hurt you right now if you're consuming it when you're young. But over the course of many, many years, it builds up in our system. The damage builds up in the sense that it can lead to increased risk for diabetes, increased risk for heart disease, increased risk for cancers. 
Also, we're even seeing now effects on metabolic health that used to happen later in life, but we're seeing them among kids. We're seeing kids who are really young developing fatty liver disease. And it's not because they're little alcoholics. It's because they're little sugarholics. They're drinking excess amounts of sugar and it's having a negative effect on their health. So you're saying that the sugar that we get from those Pop-Tarts or that, you know, that cereal um, can have just as big an impact on your health as alcohol can. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I really think that this is a message for parents, too, because, you know, obviously we educate our kids about how don't do drugs, don't use alcohol, it's bad for your brain, it'll cause you to get sick later in life. But we don't really think about sugar, right? And sugar we're seeing is doing so many of the same things that alcohol can do. It's affecting metabolic health in the way like alcohol can. It's affecting brain health in the way like alcohol can. And it's affecting addiction in the way like alcohol can. We've shown through our research that just like some people get addicted to alcohol or addicted to cigarettes or addicted to heroin, people can get addicted to sugar. And it's happening more and more often because sugar is socially accepted, it's promoted among our society, and it's something that has become normalized in terms of its availability, in terms of you know, how we view using it. And I think that if we continue down this road of having this laissez-faire attitude around sugar, we're gonna find that in the next 15 to 20 years, we're going to have a very serious health crisis, even worse than the one we're facing now with the obesity and increased risk for diabetes that we're seeing across age groups. You know, I was amazed. I've always, as a kid, you know, I wasn't that big on French fries, but I loved ketchup. I wanted the ketchup mm. more than the French fries. As an adult, I know why. How much, how much of ketchup is sugar? Yeah, it's actually mostly sugar. And it's, that's where it becomes a challenge because we find that many of the foods that are put out in fast food restaurants, if they don't themselves contain sugar, they're paired with something that contains sugar. So think about, you know, like your French fry meal, right? Many of the restaurants that sell French fries, they promote them as being part of a meal. It's cheaper to buy the meal, right? Well, yeah, the meal comes with a giant soda, that contains probably enough sugar to last you for a week. So this is where the addiction starts to form because not only are we hooking people into the reinforcer that they get directly from the sugar, but then it becomes the secondary reinforcers that people get from the pleasure that they got from eating those French fries too, or from you know going to the restaurant just in and of itself if they're a little kid and they're excited to get to go there. So all these little things we don't really think about, but I think about them because I'm a psychologist and this is what I'm, I'm doing for a living. But the more that we can help people to understand these little things and how they can affect our behavior and our health, I think the better we're all going to be. And I'm hoping that by you talking about this topic, it can help some people to really you know, think twice about the decisions they make and about how they might be kind of getting into eating and drinking certain things just because of how it can affect our brain. Well, you know, and I think it's so important that we start making those decisions when we're young, 
because then it be, then it becomes part of our lifestyle that we understand their decisions that we have to make. And I haven't seen that in. Uh, I mean, I work with adults that are in their 60s that still do not understand. It's a lifestyle choice. The decisions you make right. about what you eat, that's a lifestyle choice. Right. For what for most people, I think hearing that, you know, it can be empowering because it can help people to think about it and say, okay, you know what? Yeah, I can make the choice. But the problem is many people come to this realization and they say, yes, I do want to make that choice. But we're up against so many obstacles. I mean, think about our food environment. You can't even, you know, go on the internet without getting an advertisement for, you know, some restaurant or some recipes or things that maybe you're trying to avoid. And everywhere you go, we're getting sugar pushed on us. We live in a very sugar-centric society. And so it's really difficult for people to, you know, kind of stand up and say, yeah, I'm going to change when there are so many barriers to making that change that are put in front of people. And so I think that can really be, you know, part of the larger problem of, yeah, once people realize like, okay, I got to make some changes to support my health. What are we going to do when people can't make those changes because of all these barriers that we have up that, you know, society essentially has put in place for them? Well, you know, I find it so interesting because people in general, they use food and sugar very much like the brain uses sugar. It's a reward. Oh, happy birthday. Let's get a big birthday cake. Oh, you got an A on that test. Come on, I'll take you out for ice cream. Rewarding. And you know more than I do. Let's talk about what happens in the brain to make sugar so hard to resist. Well, we were born essentially programmed to be addicted to sugar. All of us are. And the reason for that is because we have an evolutionary predisposition to like things that taste sweet. And there's two reasons for that. One, remember that we evolved from people who used to have to be hunters and gatherers. So our ancestors, they were living off of animals that they caught or more likely off of plants and vegetables and fruits that they were finding around wherever it was that they were living. And so one of the ways that we came to learn whether or not foods that we eat, like fruits are safe, is that if they're sweet, they're generally safe, right? That means it's a nice ripe piece of fruit, you can eat it. But if you think about fruit that maybe has fallen to the forest floor, that's going to be rotten and rancid, and it's certainly not going to taste sweet if you bite into it. So we've developed this evolutionary code that sweet equals safe. And we even see that the minute we're born, if you think about infants, the first thing that they eat is breast milk, and breast milk tastes sweet. And for modern day infants, if they're not having breast milk, they're having baby formula, which tastes sweet. And so sweetness is something that we associate with safety. We associate it with our mother. We associate it with nourishment. And so it makes sense that sweetness is rewarding and that's fine. But if you think about now how we live, we are bombarded with sweetness. So sweetness is everywhere. And of course, we want to feel good. We want to be rewarded. So when we taste a little bit of something that's sweet, we get that pleasure system activated. 
But the amount of sugar that is in the products that are presently found in our modern food environment is so excessive and so much greater than what you would ever find in nature that what ends up happening is that our brains get essentially set into overdrive and get hijacked by the sugar. And so all these different neurochemicals are being released and our brain is essentially being flooded with this response. And it's very much like what happens when someone uses drugs. Drugs hijack the brain and that's why they're so addictive. And research in our lab and other labs has shown that sugar is doing the same thing. So what do we do about that? I mean, listening to you, I'm, I, honestly, I've always known how dangerous sugar was because of the impact that it has on, on the brain. If you're going to eat, if you're not going to eat right, and if you're not going to get the right amount of sleep, your brain is not going to work as effectively as it can. But what do we do besides educate the public? I mean, is there anything on a, on a higher level, that sh- on a policy level, that needs to be done? Well, you know, there's been lots of discussion around that. And, you know, some states have put forward ideas and some larger cities have put forward ideas about perhaps a sugar tax, much like how we, you know, tax tobacco and a sin tax. A sin tax is something that, you know, if you have tax on, you know, things that are luxuries, essentially, or things that maybe aren't good for us, the tax is supposed to discourage people from using it because it's going to drive up the price. And, and there's been mixed mixed evidence about whether or not these sin taxes work, I think it tends to be regionally successful or not. Um, And so that's certainly one policy-related idea that has been floating around, which would be to just tax it. But, you know, then you have to wonder, well, okay, if we start to tax these products, who are we really discouraging from using them? I mean, you know, many of these food products that have lots of added sugar, they're processed foods, they tend to be cheaper nowadays, especially than, you know, buying fresh fruits and organic vegetables and things like that. And so, you know, we have to consider the fact that we know that overeating and obesity tends to be more prevalent in lower income areas. And so we're harming those individuals who maybe can't afford to get, you know, access to better quality food. Many Americans live in what are known as food deserts. And a food desert is essentially when you have to do your grocery shopping at a local convenience store. You don't maybe have access to a large grocery store. And many Americans live in those regions. It's not always easy for people to get access to variety of fresh, wholesome foods. And so I think that we need to consider that and keep that in mind in terms of who are the individuals that we're we're trying to help and who are the individuals that have even greater barriers in front of them. But I think from a you know policy level, we, we have to come up with some ideas because I think that, you know, it's not something that seems like it's going to go away. People don't seem like they have been getting on board with the idea of limiting sugar because to be honest. Because it's something that's going to hurt them 20 years from now or hurt their kids 20 years from now. It's not going to hurt them now. And people have, it's much like heart disease. You know, people who eat a high fat diet and don't exercise, yeah, they're fine when they're in their 20s and 30s, but talk to them when they're in their 40s. And now they're on five different, you know, blood pressure medications, the cholesterol medication, statins, because of the damage they did to themselves when they were younger. And so it's very difficult to look at the future you. And I think a lot of us don't 
perceive ourselves in that way. We look at ourselves as the future me that's going to be healthy and happy and have no problems. But the reality is the future us is often going to be unhealthy and unhappy. And there's something that we can do about it. We just have to act now. Well, you know, you mentioned early on, I think that there's so many different kinds of sugar because I have clients that say, I don't eat sugar. I mean, you don't? No, I drink my coffee black. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. But then we stop and we talk about salad dressings. We talk about the different things that we add to our diets. How many different kinds of sugar are there? Or, or, or oh can God. you count them? I mean, are they countable? Well, yeah. So I'm actually working on a new book right now that will be coming out in January of 2023. And it's all about sugar. It's called Sugar Less. And one of the things that we're doing in the book is listing all of these different names of sugar, because you're right. It's not just the word sugar on the back of the label. It's brown rice syrup. It's maltodextrin. It is anything that ends in an OSE. O-S-E. It is, you know, things that sound healthy, like agave syrup. It is, you know, maple syrup. It's honey. All of those are code words for sugar. And in addition to those, you know, more commonly known ones, I think there's up to about 250 other names that can be actually added sugar. Now, on top of that, we have another layer of the problem, which is that many food companies and many people are now turning toward what I refer to as alternative sweeteners or these low calorie or no calorie sweeteners like stevia, monk fruit. Um, you know, and these other types of sweeteners, allulose is another one, that claim to be better than sugar because they're natural and, you know, they're supposedly less processed and, you know, supposedly they don't have the same type of metabolic effects as actual sugar does. But in reality, they're still causing you to get addicted to sugar. They're causing you to get addicted to sweet taste. The reason people get addicted to sugar isn't because it's sugar. It's because it tastes sweet. It's affecting sweet taste in our mouth, which affects our brain. And that's where the cycle comes into play. And so it doesn't matter what form it's in. It's really the sweetness in our diet that's promoting the addiction. So we do have a problem because not only do you have to memorize, well, not memorize, but you have to at least recognize 250 versions of what sugar is, but then you have another probably 30 or so other types of alternative sweeteners that you have to know what they are and recognize them. And then, you know, the question arises, well, what, what do we do about all the food companies that put these things into their foods, not necessarily to make it taste sweet, but often these types of sweeteners are added to mask the bad tastes that are in processed foods. And so a lot of times in order to have something last on a shelf for three years, you have to add some stuff to it that doesn't actually taste that great. And sugars and sweeteners can be used to cover that up. And so that's why you're seeing, you know, sweeteners and sugars arriving in all these different, you know, products where you're thinking, wow, why would you need to have sugar in English muffins? Well, because if you want them to last on the shelf for a little bit longer, then you're going to add some sugar to them. Wow. You know, it's it's interesting because when I think of, I'm so curious to know what you think, the what you know the answer to this question to be. But when I think of the very worst sugar that someone can put in their body, I think of soda. What do you think of? I agree. And 
I think that sugar sweetened beverages, and I actually recommend this when people, you know, I work with or people who reach out to me or read my books will see when they want to stop overeating sugar, what's the first step? And my first step for people is always focus on your beverages. Figure out what you're drinking every day, because that's relatively easy. You know, you have, you could do a food diary and write down what you're eating and drinking. Well, I suggest people just forget the whole day diary. Just focus on what you're drinking throughout the day. And if you like to drink coffee, that's great. But if you're adding a bunch of creamer with added sugar to it, or if you're adding milk with, you know, five heaps of sugar to it, then now we got to talk about how we might be able to modify that to make it healthier. Same with sugar-sweetened beverages. And so, you know, these are the typical sodas, but it's also juices as well. And those are things that add a lot of extra sugar to our diet. And they're a dangerous form of adding sugar to our diet because you never get full from drinking something. Think about it. I mean, if you could sit there and drink, you know, five apples worth of apple juice, and I bet you every dollar I have, you would not say to me after that, Dr. Vina, I'm so full. I can't, you know, even think about having any more apple juice. Because the volume of apple juice is like, I don't know, maybe not even a cup. But if I said to you, here's five apples, and I want you to sit here and eat all five of them right now, I bet you'd have a hard time doing that. And I bet you'd probably get full. And if you did finish doing that, I bet you anything, you wouldn't want to have an apple again for a while. So that's why drinking your calories isn't a good idea. You don't get satiated from them. And you also end up just, you know, wolfing down a lot more sugar than you would have if you actually ate the food that the sugar is coming from. So that's why I recommend people stay away from the juices in addition to the sugar sweetened beverages like sodas. Well, you know, it's interesting in, in the YouTube I watched, you talked about, we talked about the dopamine receptors in the brain and that being the reward. But, but when you talked about the sugar receptors in the gut, that was news to me. Yeah, so that's that's a discovery that, you know, I think has kind of changed the way we think about reward because, yes, we have this idea that you get, you know, the taste of sugar and that affects your brain directly, right? It's, you're going to have this signal get sent straight to your brain saying, yes, the sweetness on my tongue tastes good. This is rewarding. But you get like a double whammy of reward because when we have that sugar travel to our gut, we have sweet receptors there, too. And those receptors send a signal up to the brain saying, yeah, that tasted great. Let's get some more. And so this is really the cycle that occurs that leads people to want to continue to consume sugar. It causes us to feel good when we taste it and then we digest it and the process goes on and on. There's really no negative feedback or no breaks that get put on. There's two ways in which you could have breaks in terms of you know, telling your, you to stop eating or that you're done having a sugar, you've had enough. One is that you'll get satiated, you'll get full, right? And usually that has to do more with distension of the stomach. Like we've had a, a volume of food put into our stomachs and it'll distend and release certain chemicals that'll get in our bloodstream and get to the brain and tell us to stop eating. That's one way. But another way in which our brains and our bodies know to stop eating is essentially the fact that we are able to have volitional control over it 
by having our frontal cortex, our prefrontal cortex, which is that, you know, more developed, rational, logical part of the brain that other animals don't have, say, stop eating. You just ate a giant piece of cake. You do not need another one. And, you know, this is what separates us from dogs, right? If I gave my dog, you know, the, the box of dog biscuits and I said, here's one, don't have another one. He's not going to do that. He's going to just eat the whole box. <laughs> Whereas humans, can, we can put the brakes on. We can say stop. But the problem is when we talk about addiction, that part goes out the window. You can't say, no, I want to stop all the time when you have an addiction. That's the definition of addiction is the inability to control one's intake. Well, it's so interesting because, you know, when you com- you make compare, I love the comparison to a dog. They, they don't have the abilities to not do that. And we do. But I find it so difficult for not just, you know, adults, but for kids. And, and I see it to be a big point of conflict in families. And it's it, I ask myself, why is it so hard? Yeah, you know, I think it is. You, I'm glad you brought up the point about families because I think it can be hard because not everyone in the family is always on the same page when it comes to how they perceive healthy eating. And I think part of that comes back to the fact that if you think about it, I mean, who teaches us what healthy eating is? The schools don't. I mean, even back, if, you know, going back into, I'm thinking about like my parents when they were younger when they were little kids growing up in the fifties, they didn't really learn about what healthy eating was. And I know for now, for sure, little kids are not taught that in elementary school. We're taught, you know, we have my plate, which is like the government's guidelines about what you should eat. But I always find it really interesting that, you know, we know that obesity will soon beat out smoking as the leading preventable cause of death in the United States. And we have all of this money and efforts devoted towards teaching kids and parents, you know, how to avoid smoking and vaping and e-cigarettes and why it's so bad for you. And all of these funding mechanisms to help educate parents about how to talk to their kids about this. But there's not one single shred of information or help or programming that I'm aware of on a federal level, for sure, that tells people about talking to your kids about the dangers of overeating. Or about the dangers of having too much sugar. You know, that is such a great point to make before we go to break. Because it's, why why wouldn't we want to talk about that? Why wouldn't we want to educate about that? There's so many things, so many reasons that say we should do this. We, you know, and and I've even had parents say, oh, I will. I I, I will do that. And then in a follow-up visit, well, you know. That just didn't happen. So I think that is such an amazing last point to make in the first half of the show. It's that we have got to, it's a commitment. It is a commitment that we've all got to make. And I think, you know, I'm hoping that when we come back from break, you'll be able to share some tips with our listeners and give them some ideas on how they can do that. We'll be back after these messages.
Would you like to know how to bring more ease to all the decisions you need to make in life? Knowing your core values is the first step in Joyce's free live masterclass. You'll discover your top five core values in as little as 45 minutes. Join her now at freegiftfromjoyce.com. dentist invented the first electric chair? Just thinking about going to the dentist makes me feel like I'm headed for death row. What's a word for the fear of a dentist? Odontophobia. Bruxomania is another word for the compulsive grinding of one's teeth. Early toothbrushes were twigs with frayed ends. Toothpaste in a tube was made available to the public in 1892 and was called Dr. Scheffel's Cream Dentifrice. Now Americans buy 14 million gallons of toothpaste every year. In Mexico, the tooth fairy is called the tooth mouse. Half of all Americans say that a smile is the first thing they notice about a person. It's easy to spot a person with a fake smile, otherwise known as an exodesiast. I'm Carolyn Davidson, and you can have fun challenging your words-you-never-heard vocabulary with my free app, Too Funny for Words. We're back. Now here is your host, Lee Richardson. We're back, and we're talking about something that is, you know, it's almost a a four-letter word, except it's a five-letter word, and that's sugar. And it's something that is so hard for many of us to walk away from, and it's something that is so hard for many of us just to recognize. And so, Dr. Avina, what are some tips that you can share with our listeners? I mean, is it, do you just have to read the, the label or, or what do you look for? Well, I think it's really about figuring out how you can still enjoy the things that you want to choose, want to eat. You know, we don't want to have people feeling like they're deprived, but understanding which foods contain added sugar so that you can either buy an alternative brand that maybe doesn't contain added sugars or sweeteners, or you could figure out a way to have a swap that's still going to allow you to enjoy what you want to enjoy. And so one of the things that I suggest is really becoming familiar with all of these different names for added sugar and all these other sweeteners. You have to look at it like it's part of your job to kind of become a food detective. I mean, it's something that, you know, we really need to educate ourselves about and become savvy consumers, just like you might, you know, have a certain grocery store that you shop at because they have the better sales and, you know, you might get coupons or whatever you do when you are grocery shopping. You have to kind of apply that same mindset to looking at the labels. And so I often tell people, look at those labels, carry around with you either one of my books that has a list of all the different names for sugar or have your little cheat sheet of the more common ones. And that way you can, you know, quickly figure out what are the things that have sugar, what are the things that don't. I'll just share a couple of examples. So for example, like you said earlier, ketchup, condiments, salad dressings, those tend to be high in added sugar. And so finding ones that aren't high in added sugar could be a challenge. I suggest that if you really want to have a salad dressing or something that you dress your salad in, look online. There's tons of recipes. I got recipes in my books as well for ways in which you can make creamy, delicious 
dressing to your salad that aren't going to have all that added sugar. And they're going to have actually boosts of things in it that are nutritious for you instead. Also, the um, other thing that I think people are really mindful about that are savvy when it comes to figuring out how to get sugar out of their diet is breakfast items. So breakfast is the most important meal of the day. It's the first thing we have. And a lot of times people end up eating more than the daily recommended amount of sugar for the entire day just with breakfast alone, because so many of the cereals, the oatmeal, and many of the products that are available for breakfast are loaded with added sugar. So you really want to be mindful about what you're eating for breakfast and figure out ways in which you can make some swaps so that you can still have the things you want, but it's not loaded down with added sugar. You make such a good point because, you know, and many times we're on the run for our breakfast. So we're grabbing right. what's whatever is is right, you know, that we can grab. And and I can remember having young kids, you know, this was 34 years ago, but not being so well educated about sugar and grabbing a fruit bar um, and thinking, thinking I was doing something really good for my kids so that they could go to school and have their brain work a little better. And now when I think back, whew, you know, <laughs> I think it's been a, a learning process for all of us. But breakfast, when I look back, I think that's probably when I fed my kids the most sugar. Yeah. And I mean, most people have that same issue. And again, you know, part of it is the way which society has kind of constructed things. Many, many of us are, you know, working families or if you're a single parent, Maybe you're getting ready to go to work while your kids are getting ready for school. There's not a lot of time in the morning to, you know, prepare a delicious sugar-free meal. But one of the things that I recommend that people try to do is think ahead. I know in my house, we make an egg frittata every couple days. And, you know, I make it sometimes in the evening. And then in the morning, we could slice it up like a pizza pie. And it's got vegetables in it, got some cheese in it. And it's got a lot of protein in it. And it's going to keep the kids feeling fuller longer. And so they'll have some of that with breakfast. Um, and, you know, there are things you can try to do ahead of time to save time in the morning. Because if you're popping frozen pancakes into the microwave, you could certainly, you know, pop a piece of, you know, egg frittata that you made the night before or a couple of days before into the microwave, too. So think about, you know, moving beyond the processed food and, we can find those foods to be wonderful because they're convenient, right? We can just, you know, here, take this out of the freezer and throw it in the microwave. But you can do that yourself. You can figure out ways to make things more convenient just by getting a little bit creative around your meals and doing a little bit of prep ahead of time. You make such a good point. And that that sounds so good. I'm listening to you describe it with the, the veggies. And I'm like, yeah, that would make a great breakfast. So as they, you know, and I think if they start their day without sugar, won't that reduce the amount of sugar that they want later in the day? Absolutely. I mean, if you wake up and, you know, have sugar, you're just starting the day with sugar. So the rest of the day is going to be all about the sugar. And so I think that if you can at least work on you yourself, especially getting out of your front door without having started your day with added sugar, that's a huge win. And often when I work with people, I'll tell them, you know, don't worry about figuring out the whole day, okay? It's, it's too much and it's overwhelming to figure it all out. Let's just start with breakfast. 
let's just figure out the first day, the first meal that you have each day. What do you like to eat? What are some things that maybe you could make or what are some things that you could buy at the grocery store? What could we do to reduce the sugar or reduce the sweetness in that meal? And that's going to really be great because that's going to help you be set down the path for the rest of the day of not having those ups and downs that we typically get from those sugar crashes. Well, I love your approach. You're giving, you're making it so, it sounds like, well, when you're talking, I'm thinking I could do that. I mean, you're making it so doable instead of saying, okay, you know, you've got to, you know, reduce the sugar in your diet by 75%. And, and I know that's a really healthy thing to do, but I also know that can, that statement alone can overwhelm a lot of people. And when we get overwhelmed, the first thing that we do, most of us do is we push back. Exactly. And I've come to see that as one of the biggest barriers that we've put up in the diet, it's the diet industry. The diet industry is the diet industry's own worst en- in- uh, enemy because you know, we're trying to help people by showing them how they can improve their diet. But when we put all these restrictions on what people can eat, and then people can't adhere to that because they're coming at this from a background of maybe being addicted to sugar and you know, trying to overcome this addiction in a world that's constantly pushing sugar on them, People feel defeated. People feel like they failed. And so it's about making better choices. Not every single time, because you have to forgive yourself. You have to allow yourself room to make mistakes and room to grow. Because I like to tell people, any better choice you make is a better choice than what you would have made, right? And that's that's a win. That's what we're looking for. And so we're looking to just incrementally increase the percentage of better choices that you make when it comes to what you eat. And that'll happen. That can completely happen. It just takes time. And I think, you know, many people fall into this, this desire of wanting that quick fix, right? They want to just say, okay, just tell me what I got to do so I can do it. And, you know, we can be on, be done with this. And it's not really going to work like that because if you have a lifetime of poor eating habits that we're trying to, you know, correct or maybe, you know, change a bit, you can't expect overnight for them all to change. They don't have to all change. It's really about making small changes so that you're going to stick to those changes. You're going to want to stick to them because of the way that they make you feel. Well, I love that you come at it from that positive approach instead of the negative approach, because, you know, shame and blame has never created good results in my life. Even when I even when I have those self-defeating thoughts going in my own head, you should do that, Lee. You should do that. Shame on you. You didn't do that. That never gets me anywhere. And so I love that you come at it with that positivity and look for the positive ways to make change instead of don't don't shame yourself because you enjoy that that sweet. It's just understand that it's maybe you turn that into something that's a special occasion. Right. Or you, you know, recognize the fact that I'm supposed to enjoy sweets. That it's how my brain is wired. It's okay for me to enjoy them. It's just that my brain wasn't designed for me to be rewarded by them all day long, day in and day out. And so that's really, I think, you know, the problem. We've gotten away from sweet treats being sweet treats, right? Now they're just sweet every day, all day. 
And so I think that, you know, thinking about the fact, like you said, you know, about putting a positive spin on it, growing from your mistakes. One of the biggest things I, I think people struggle with is if they make a poor choice and end up, you know, overeating or eating, you know, two pieces of cake instead of one. After that moment and they have all this guilt and this shame and blame. And I think instead of using it as a point to beat yourself up, you should use it as a point to grow. You should say to yourself, well, why, why did I do that? Did someone pressure me? Did I have a party goer pushing that second piece of cake on me, encouraging me to eat it? Did I, you know, maybe not have enough for lunch? So I was actually really hungry and that's why I wanted a second piece of cake. Think about the situation so you could grow from it. So you know for next time that if someone's pushing food on you and you don't want it, you'll have a snazzy comeback ready. Or you won't let yourself skip lunch and have yourself then, you know, be at risk for having overeating of cake or other things that maybe you didn't want to have too much of. So use these, what we used to call slip-ups or relapses or whatever, as growing moments, as points where you can learn about yourself, learn about how you can navigate our social world when it comes to food, so that next time you'll not make that mistake. You know, I think that when I've seen people more than, more than willing to think about making change in their diet, with the female population, it's when they're thinking that, you know, I think I really, I want to have a baby. I think I want to get pregnant. Um, you know, that's when I see people, women, saying, okay, I'm going to make this change for me and for my baby. And that's something that you've written some books about. So I guess it has to start with what to eat when you want to get pregnant. Yeah, so uh, what to eat when you want to get pregnant, that's my latest book. And that's actually going to be um, coming out in paperback sometime, hopefully in early January 2023. Um, and that book, you know, I was interested in writing that because I think that one of the ways in which we can really make change is to prevent a lot of the behaviors and the habits that us as adults are struggling with now from happening to begin with. And that really starts in infancy and even before that it starts during conception and so the idea is that thinking about you know what foods you can eat when you're pregnant or you want to get pregnant how you can support your body to grow a healthy baby but also how you can begin the process of reducing all the added sugar so you could have a healthy happy baby that isn't necessarily born hooked on all this sugar and how that can be a way in which we can, you know, reduce our dependence on sugar and have kids that aren't necessarily, you know, coming out of the womb and already hooked on sugar, much like kids come out of the womb and they're hooked on drugs. And I think pregnancy is one of those beautiful, unique periods in time. And traditionally, we've kind of viewed pregnancy as, you know, oh, don't don't worry about what you eat. Who cares? You'll, you know, lose the weight after you have the baby. Enjoy yourself. You're eating for two. And yeah, I know that those things are meant to make the mom feel good. But in reality, the research says something very, very different. What you eat during pregnancy is extremely important. And making sure you're getting all the right nutrients, the variety of foods is so important for a baby's health, baby's brain development. Minimizing added sugars and processed foods 
is critical because we're seeing that so many of the foods that have added sugars and are highly processed, they don't contain the nutrients that we need to grow a baby. And so it is very important to make sure that you're getting the right nutrition early in life. And again, that starts even before the baby's born in many cases. So if you decide you want to get pregnant, do you eat differently while you're trying to get pregnant than you do after you get pregnant? Not necessarily. I mean, it's really not all that different. There are some foods that I talk about in my book, what to eat when you want to get pregnant, that are known to help promote fertility. So individuals, men or women who are maybe, you know, struggling with getting pregnant, there are certain foods that can be helpful with that respect. But when you do finally get pregnant, it's really about eating foods that contain nutrients that we know are going to support the baby's growth along the way. And so the nutrient needs are not exactly the same in the first trimester as they are in the third trimester. For example, in the first trimester, very important that moms are consuming foods and getting enough folate. Folate is important for the development of the brain and the spinal cord of the baby. And so that's something that is very important. You can get that from spinach and leafy greens. But flash forward to the third trimester, you know, that's when we want to make sure we're getting enough iron in our diet and calcium in our diet, because the baby is going to need those things once they leave your body and enter the world. The baby needs to have iron on board, you know, because they're not necessarily going to be getting it until they start eating foods themselves because there's no iron in breast milk. So it's important that we have a variety in our diet throughout our pregnancies, but there are certain things that it's important to get more of at various different points, depending on what's developing with the baby. And I go through that all the time, all the weeks of pregnancy, all 40 weeks and what's developing with the baby, what foods are important to be eating. And I also have a lot of recipe ideas and ways in which you can get those foods into your diet in my book, what to eat when you're pregnant. That's great because sometimes it's, when you're, when you're pregnant, things can be overwhelming and it's just so easy to pick up a book and have your answers right there. I think that would be, that's very, very helpful. And you know, as well as I do, when you get out on the internet, you can find so many different answers. You can ask the same question and you can find so many different answers and that can be more confusing. It's so true. And actually, that's one of the reasons why I wrote What to Eat When You're Pregnant was because when I got pregnant, I was thinking, oh, wow, okay, I, I know a lot about nutrition. I know a lot about the brain. This should be so easy. I, I should know what to eat when I'm pregnant during the various different weeks. And I was shocked that there really wasn't any positive information out there for women about nutrition and pregnancy. It was a lot of like, don't eat this, don't eat that, don't gain too much weight. And I know from the research that there's actually a lot of research out there on how nutrition can help improve pregnancy outcomes. And so that's why I decided to write the book, because I felt like women really needed, you know, a little bit of a dose of positivity, too, in addition to this useful information that can help them to stay healthy and help their babies to grow healthy as well. So what I hear you say is you really kind of need to, well, this is a question, is this what I'm hearing you say? You really need to think about where your baby is, what part of your baby is developing, and feed 
eat food that like, let's say the, well, no, the lungs are the last thing to develop, but let's say just for conversation, um, you know, that the lungs are developing that that's the end of the pregnancy. Would you, would you eat something differently? Yeah. So you're essentially, obviously we're not going to focus solely on foods that are going to promote lung health because even though the lungs might be developing at that point in time, all the other things that have developed need to be supported. We need to support cells throughout the various parts of the body. But yeah, the idea is that, you know, you can have a variety in your diet that's going to be somewhat dictated by what point you are in your pregnancy. So, you know, for instance, um, when we were talking about, like you were saying about the lungs developing, that typically happens around like gestational week 32-ish. And that's when the baby's starting to practice breathing on their own so that that way, you know, they know how to move their diaphragm when they come out of the womb and into the world. And so having things like brown rice or wild rice during that time can be good because that is a good source of carbohydrates. And those good carbohydrates are the types of carbohydrates that you want to have, the complex ones, not the simple carbohydrates, which tend to be the ones that, you know, are coming from things like added sugars. And so, you know, having those types of foods can help to promote some of the nutrient needs that would be supporting the lung development and lung health. And so, you know, that's really what it's all about. It's about supporting the baby's development, supporting your pregnancy, and using good food to do so. And I think it's really interesting and fun to learn about how all these different foods contain nutrients that can, when you put them together the right way, help to support your growing baby and help to make you feel good. And that's really the bottom line is to help people learn how to use food for the good, because food is our first medicine and we need to start treating it that way and using it preventatively. So we don't have to be taking all of these, you know, pharmaceutical medications as we age. Well, you make some really, really good points. And and I understand how overwhelming it can be for people to try and, you know, figure it out on their own. And there's really no reason to do that. I mean, your book, What to Eat When You're Pregnant, consultations with your medical staff that's helping you through the pregnancy, and hopefully that'll have some new, an element of nutrition in there as well. But if you were to tell, give people advice of one thing not to eat when you're pregnant, what would it be? It would be soda. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Well, and I know it's, it's, it's not specific to just pregnancy. That's the one thing I would tell people to avoid, even if you're not pregnant, but you know, if you can start your baby off on the right foot by not having them be born on a background of having been, you know, tasting sugar sweetened beverages, you're really going to be doing yourself a service and your baby a service as well. well. I think that's a great takeaway. I mean, we talked a lot about different things, but if listeners, if you remember one thing from the whole show, whether you're pregnant or not, if you can get that soda out of your daily consumption, you are gut health, brain health, body health. It, it all comes together. It, it really does. See, we have talked a lot about different things, and we've got about five minutes left before we close the show. And I just wanted to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners 
um, if they do write blogs, how do you put information out there? How could they, are you on Facebook? Can they follow you? So any information yeah. that you can share? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So um, if you want to read about all the different things that we're up to in terms of research or articles or different things that are going on in my lab, uh, you can check out my website. It's www.drnicoleavina.com. And I'm also on social media at Dr. Nicole Avina. And there we post links to, you know, stories about our research, articles um, where I'm talking about different health-related and nutrition-related topics that are going on and, you know, links to segments that I do on TV as a nutrition expert. And then you can also get access to my books on Amazon and also uh, links on my website for people who are interested perhaps in um, nutrition consulting. So that Dr. Nicole Avina, is that D-R Nicole Avina? Yes. Yes, it is. We are Nicole Avina. Yep. So that's that's great that you put so much information out there because it's you know finding the right information, finding information that's valid, that there's science behind. I am all about the science. Anything that there's science behind is is where we really need to to follow. And you've done so much research, and you're so well published with your scholarly publications, that that in itself is substantial. There's no doubt about that. So you- Oh, you, well, thank next, you, I appreciate it. Your next book on sugar, when is that coming out? Pretty soon? Well, we're hoping it'll be coming out January of 2023. You know how it goes in the publishing world that that's always a you know a plan, but yeah, that's, that's the plan, 2023, January and of uh, the title right now is sugar less and it's going to be all about you know how to beat your addiction to sugar tips on how you can remove it from your diet and also you know lots of yummy recipes that are sugar free well you know we talked we gave a few tips is there any tip that comes to mind that we didn't share about how you remove it from your diet well you know one thing we didn't talk about that i could leave you with is think about the sources of sugar that you don't introduce. And so something that's been referred to as secondhand sugar, this is the sugar that somebody else gives you. And so if you go to a party and, you know, people are putting out food and everything has sugar in it, right? Um, a lot of times you don't always have control over what you're eating in the sense that, you know, sometimes you're not the one who's dictating the menu. And so that's also something to be mindful of is that you have to be prepared for reacting in situations where there aren't any healthy alternatives. And that's why I often suggest before people go to parties or maybe out to restaurants where, you know, the group's ordering food together and you're not going to have really a say, eat before you go. <laughs> so you could just have a little something or an appetizer and still be a part of the group and have a great time, but not necessarily have to start eating things that you don't want to eat to begin with. I think that is great advice. Stay away from secondhand sugar. And, you know, that's that's just such great advice for folks. And if you know you're going to be exposed to a lot of it, eat something healthy before you go. Dr. Avina, I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. When you get that book out, we may have to have you come back and learn some more about how we take charge of the sugar in our life. 
behalf of Lee Richardson and the Brain Performance Center, we want to thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more episodes like this, visit us on iTunes, Google Play, Toginet, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and thebrainperformancecenter.com. Thank you.